0: Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the DealMaker Show. So today we're going to be learning a lot about starting, scaling, financing, I mean IPO, you name it. So I guess uh, without further ado, Mark Dankberg, welcome to the show today. Oh, thanks for having me. So originally born in New York City, uh, out of Long Island. So how was how was life being born and and raised there? You know, because I I understand that you then moved to L.A. So how was how was life growing up?
1: Well, I thought it was fine while I lived in New York. You know, it was I remember it was cold, but it was fun. But I, I like Southern California a lot better. and I've been there ever since.
0: Got it. Got it. And and obviously, I mean, I'm in New York City, so I do not recommend the cold. So I can I can relate to to that. But but how did you develop the love for uh, engineering and you know? Because I know that you studied electrical engineering at Rice. So how did you develop the love for that?
1: I don't know. I think I always liked gadgets. I liked math and science, and uh, I, you know, I liked always liked reading. And I remember from when I was young, always reading about. Well certainly space was a big a big thing growing up in the 1960s. there was a space program and uh, I just liked computers uh, building things, and I just got drawn into it somehow
0: and why space what, what what was attracting you about space oh
1: well the whole the whole thing about going to the moon was so incredible it captured people's imagination and it's a little bit hard to to believe, but there were so many launches. Uh, you know, growing up, there was the you know the Mercury, Gemini, Apollo program, and there were so many launches leading up to it. I guess it was just always at the forefront of the news, and it's hard to imagine anything more exciting besides sports. I guess that was the other big thing I like, but but that uh, mm-hmm. I, I wasn't good at sports, and I I felt <laughs> I could be good at engineering, and
0: so uh, that was that was a more natural choice. Really cool. So then, so then you end up in Rice and, you know, then obviously you're taking the engineering a little bit more serious. So what, what was the, um what was this a uh, process and experience for you? Well,
1: uh, I, it was all, I always thought it was fun. I really enjoyed engineering. I liked computers and uh, that was one of the things my father did was he got involved in computer systems engineering in the sixties and he would, show me computers would go to his office. He worked at IBM for a while. And so I'd see computers. I'd learn how to interface with them and program them. And then there were times even in high school where I got to program computers on timeshare. And so that, that whole thing about programming was really interesting. And then in the seventies, uh, with late seventies, mid seventies, when I was at rice, uh, That was just the start of microprocessors, so you could have your own computer, you know, make your own computer, program them in machine language and assembly language. And then uh, in the late 70s also, digital signal processing became a thing, and so you could actually do these really cool things with computers, Uh, not just do hotel reservation systems, but you could do things that you could interact with, and it uh, it was just really fun, so uh, kind of captured my imagination and and I didn't really I I guess I didn't really have a good understanding of what it would be like or what it meant from a career perspective but uh,
0: I I thought there was something there and I thought that would be something I'd like to do. Got it and obviously you know computers have matured quite a bit you know probably (laughs) back then you needed a, a moving company to move the computer and now you can carry that in your pocket. Yeah I mean when I was
1: at rice when I was in college it was still punch card time so if you were going to do things in you know programming and computer architecture courses it was always build you know make a deck of punch cards and submit it and hang around and wait till you got your job back um it was just i think at the end of grad school where i got to use mini computers where you could interact with them directly and there were also you know programmable calculators which were Pretty pretty powerful at the time. You could program those, and you could hook them up to plotters and and do, do all this you know research. It was that was just fun stuff, and it turned out to be it turned out to be really relevant to my career.
0: So uh, it was it was good stuff to learn. Absolutely. So so I understand that. After Rice, you did um you know you did your fair amount of share in, in corporate. So uh you had a couple of positions. So so could you walk us through what were those roles that you had and what did you learn from them?
1: Yeah, uh yeah. So I first
0: started, uh worked at
1: a Collins Radio division of Rockwell and, and Collins Radio is a really interesting company. It'd been started by Arthur Collins Collins is an entrepreneur and grew the company pretty steadily, but uh, I think probably late 60s, early 70s, not quite sure which, ran into some financial troubles, and it turned out it was required by Rockwell, and it still is, uh, Rockwell's a big conglomerate, but Collins Radio is still around today. Uh, as a, a really interesting company. I, le- I learned a lot there. One of the things I learned that probably influenced me a lot, I, I learned I was actually pretty pretty good at sort of communication systems, which was interesting because I hadn't really done that, in college, I'd been more bioengineering, but I learned I was I could be good at it. And the other thing I got exposed to was working with customers, which for them was mostly in the defense industry. But I learned that uh, people who could bridge uh, kind of the business purposes—what, why were we doing the things that we we're doing—and then what was the technology, and where was the technology going—that those those people were. Were valuable and that customers liked talking to me and that was that was really helpful in learning what the market wanted so it was it was really influential in my career but then yeah. the other thing i learned there was it it was a big big company it was a you know, at the time rockwell was in rocket engines and power tools it was a big conglomerate and there were some right. real issues in what a conglomerate could do, or the rate at which it could adapt to to changes in the market, and so I was really interested in in smaller companies just to find out,
0: you know, what that was like. So then let's talk about the um the next um, the next experience here that you had with Linkabit. So so what was that? What did you learn there?
1: It was that was it was really interesting? It was a v- pretty small company. I I joined there in '79. And uh, maybe 300-ish people. It was started and run by ex-university professors, uh, Erwin Jacobs and Eva Turby, were kind of the two principals who were both extremely famous and and well-deserved in uh, communications theory. Very theoretical stuff, but had found some really interesting applications and I think what I got out of there was really another level of rigor and theoretical analysis and what you know what you could gain by applying that level of theoretical knowledge to real practical problems in in communications theory in in communications applications digital communications and I also got to learn more about this whole issue about the intersection between business and the technology. So that, that was really good. You know, it was really good for my career. I, I think I learned a ton there.
0: So then, you know, this was actually the um, what led you to 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 launch, you know, your business. Uh, and, I, and I have to tell you, I mean, and, and we'll get into this in, in quite a bit, but you are the founder that I've interviewed that has stayed the most at a company. I mean, you founded. <laughs> this company in 1986. Is that right? Yes. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. (laughs) So so let's talk about, let's talk about the incubation process of this idea. Like how, how do you start thinking about the concept and, and what is that day where you finally give your notice in Linkabit perhaps, and and you said, I'm going to build a a business out of this.
1: Yeah. So Linkabit was, was really interesting. I was there from, 79 to 86 when we started by and the company grew by by you know at least a factor of 5 in employees so we went from about 300 people I think to over 1500 by the time I left it had been acquired by a company called Maycom uh, and, and Maycom had had a fair amount of resources that they could put put into Linkabit and Linkabit was a really strong systems company, and so I learned a lot about thinking about big systems, uh, what the role of of digital communications was in there. And in that in the eighties, it was really interesting because I remember kind of you know, one of the big things in right around uh nineteen eighty ish time frame was Apple going public, which that was a pretty big indication of what the potential was for, you know, for people in digital electronics and digital hardware. I mean, Apple was computing, we were communications, but you could see the potential for communications. In the early 80s, you had just the, first inklings of things like email linkabit had university ties we had an email system that was really powerful we had networked computers that were really interesting that was all pretty pretty early because one of the things linkabit did was we had involvements with arpanet and we were looking at extensions of arpanet through satellites and so we you know, I was into packet networks at an early time and the ARPANET packet networks, that's what evolved into the internet. So you could sort of see all these things swirling around that there, there was a lot of potential. And Erwin Jacobs, who went on to file company left he and some others left Linkabit in eighty-five, obviously, you know, they they right. had uh they had some really good vision on on what was gonna matter and we we could see that stuff happening at Linkabit. But I also saw, as Linkabit grew so fast, there were a lot of changes, went from a a really small company to a big company, competing with other big companies. And I think there were things in my experience at Linkabit that I thought, well, well, these things could be done better as a company. And so I would say one of the factors that, that influenced me in thinking about starting Viasat and has still been one of the things sort of front and center as we've grown, and I'm going to, you know, this whole issue about staying there for such a long time was how do you, how do you grow and scale a company and not lose the things that made it so exciting as a small company? Well, what is that? And, and how, how do small companies become more bureaucratic and less fun? And how can you avoid those things that, I think that was really the thing that we had in our mind when we started Vice. That was less about sort of the classic startup, which is, oh, we've got a great product idea. And here's this thing that this the world needs, and we're going to go make that and be really good at it. Uh, we didn't know what that was. We really did not have a product idea when we started the company. But what I had in mind and, and the two co-founders who started the company with me who are still here had in mind was, well, There should be a way to do this that makes things more fun, basically, and still can be really profitable. But there, there could be some organizing principles and some ways about building a company that could be better. So then, how did you meet your co-founders? So we we all worked together at Linkabit. It was uh, Linkabit had an incredible engineering workforce uh, because it was. Started by university professors, as I mentioned, had good close ties to universities, and they hired a bunch of their former students, and they had a strong network among other really good academics. And so, they Linkabit was able to hire a lot of really strong new graduates, and, and I think that was real, that was the strength of the company. There was a handful of good, really good senior people. Senior being maybe in their forties, and lots of really strong people right out of school. Which is one of the things I learned was that was definitely the way to grow a company. And uh, so that you know that was that was kind of the environment. That and then uh, and, and then and no so so there were these two you know so the three of us that uh, worked together a bit. I was kind of a systems guy, and I dealt with customers, Uh, Steve Hart, who was one of the other founders, was really strong in software architecture, big software architecture, math, uh, and network security and cryptography, and then Mark Miller was really strong in digital communication systems theory, but also in hardware design so the three of us had worked together for a few years and had put together some very successful space projects, systems projects, and we really enjoyed working together. I think we had a lot of mutual respect, and among the three of us, we spanned a, a lot of both technology and sort of business and market knowledge. So that was that was it. That was we had worked together. We liked we liked it. Uh, I remember uh, we were at a company party one one evening, and we were sitting together at a table, and our wives all got up at the same time to go to the ladies' room. And so I, I told them, "You know, I'm thinking about starting a company. Uh, what, would you guys would you guys want to do that?" And they both said yes before the wives came back. And so that was it. <laughs> Pretty much, wow. they said yes. And then it was it was quite a while. I'd say months months to a year later. I can't remember the exact timing, but they were, uh, they, you know, they were really committed and that was great because it would have been really hard without them.
0: And was there like, um, like uh, a specific event that, you know, was for you like the event that triggered for you to say today is the day I give my notice because this is, this is going to happen. Uh, I remember what
1: ha- what was going on was, uh, well, so let's see, we started in the spring of 86, in the summer of 85, uh, on kind of kind of early 85, spring of 85, Irwin Jacobs left, uh, left Link a bit, which was a fairly traumatic thing. And by the end of the summer, he had brought, he had taken a pretty good contingent of others along and started Qualcomm. I mean, were, originally it was just he who'd left. Uh, uh, and, but you know, by the end of the summer of 85, there's a big, there was a big, uh, well, big uh, eight or nine people, co-founders of Qualcomm that were all key people. So, uh, so by then I was, even though I was only 30, I think I was uh 30, 31. I was a, a, I was a vice president at Linkabit and had a pretty, had a pretty big group. I was my business area I had a, running a business area and, felt a little bad. I mean, the hardest part about starting a company, I felt, was leaving behind all the friends and maybe 150 people that worked for me at Linkabit. So, leaving them behind was, that that was a negative part of it. And so, actually, the the catalyst was we were working on winning a big satellite program for Linkabit, one of the largest development programs they had. And so, the three of us worked together to land that program. We signed the contract, had the kickoff meeting with the customer, and then we felt, okay, it, now we can leave, uh, that we weren't going to feel bad because, you know, we'd sort of created a, some momentum for the, you know, the people in the business who were leaving behind. And that, that actually was the chaos. I remember that's, we
0: turned in our resignation kind of right after we had that kickoff meeting. So what was that um, that night where you went to, to your house, you know, after getting the resignation? I was going through your head and through your wife's head. <laughs> oh, so um,
1: uh, I think, you know, my wife, uh, had, she, I mean, she was just confident for some reason. She felt like I'd been successful in my career and that uh, I think she, she was just very supportive and, hopefully, and she didn't act worried, you know, there, but there was a, I'd say a bad thing that happened at Linkabit that turned out to be pretty motivational is, you know, I, I turned in my resignation and uh, and my there was a VP who ran the division said, okay, you know, this is going to be a big deal. Why don't you go home and uh, and we'll figure out how to announce that to the rest of the company. So I did that afternoon. He called me later that afternoon and said well we don't want you to come back you know we think it's going to be too disruptive I don't know if he was thinking that I was going to try to try to poach people or something said but don't come back and that that made me mad because I didn't I hadn't really had a chance to even talk to all the people that worked for me and explain what we're doing and why so so immediately after that I said, Okay, I'm out. You know, I mean, that's uh, uh, that was not good. So, I call. I started calling people I knew uh, in the industry and said, "Well, hey, I've left Link a bit, and uh, we're starting a new company." And that same evening, I had two two big company customers say, "Wow, if you're out, you know, we want to hire your company like immediately. Can you start tomorrow?" So right. that was a good. St- so that was actually, you know, the fact that they did that, and that really motivated me to get things going. Was a big confidence
0: boost, actually. So, so were you like getting some revenues like right away? Like, or yeah, like- yeah, wow. we- and what? Just out of curiosity, like what kind of revenues was that in the first month, for example? Oh,
1: well, so,
0: so, well, the other thing that happened, which is
1: also pretty motivating, was uh, they figured I was the ringleader and they worked really hard on my two co founders. They forced them to stay for, you know, give two weeks' notice. And then they just every day tried to alternately bribe them or threaten them to not join us. Uh, but they wow. did, you know, they, uh, they, I mean they' were very high integrity, and they wanted to leave so that they came and that was also a boost but I would say uh we probably you know we had we literally had no money there were each of us had little kids and big mortgages and so uh we were working out of my house we had you know we uh basically probably we did about three hundred thousand dollars in revenue that first year so it was probably you know 20 25,000 a month so that's kind of what we were doing you know it was right from the beginning is working for uh, big aerospace companies and
0: we were helping them on their own satellite projects that's how we got I mean, started Back then, uh, three hundred thousand, you know, right off the bat, you yeah. know, twenty k, you know, a month. Yeah. Uh, Mark, I got to tell you, I mean, with inflation, and everything that's really good, you know, if, <laughs> if we adjust today, yeah, you know? yeah,
1: it was a good, it was a good start. And by the end of the first year, I mean, one of the one of the things that was really important was trying to figure out. Okay, we have to be profitable. We have no money. Well, <laughs> although we raised, so we raised three hundred thousand dollars of venture capital uh, during that first year, probably three or four months after we started which yeah. let us move out of my house and you know actually get an office and buy a real printer and a copy machine so we didn't have to stop at kinko's all the time um Got but it. that by the by the end of that first year i think by the you know the last couple months we were profitable which was a big deal for us and we had we had added two people so we, we're, you know, we're starting to be on our way. It was, was, but it was, you know, I think that was my big objective was at the beginning was to last a year, and so then it
0: wouldn't be like totally embarrassing, you know. That uh, so basically, you 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 had given yourself like about twelve months to really make this thing work.
1: No, well, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say it was twelve months to make it work. It was well, it's twelve months. Uh, uh it was really just a question of would we run out of money would we get to the point where we just couldn't hang on and it turned out uh wasn't you know that we, we did we hang we, did, we were able to hang on we raised the 300,000 dollars it turned out we probably didn't didn't have to have it because we were just always busy and growing i mean one of the things that's kind of amazing and we are pretty proud of it i think in 33 years there might be one year where we were flat in revenue, but I think we've grown every year for 33 years. And I remember, you know, we grew pretty fast back in the beginning. I mean, the, the numbers were small. <laughs> the growth rate was high. It took quite a while before it compounded into something really interesting. But but uh, yeah,
0: we're, we grew pretty steadily. And talking about steadily, I mean, I just saw reported that you guys did annual revenues of $2.1 So probably now looking back, you might be getting, you know, some vertigo type of thing when you see the, the height that you have reached. But just for the people that are listening, Mark, what ended up being the business model of Biasat? Well, what
1: we wanted to do from the beginning, one of the things we learned at Linkabit was we did really, really good systems engineering, but the way we made money was by selling products. And so... The things that we, the thing we really wanted to do was we, we wanted to avoid getting trapped as consultants where we were just selling our expertise and be able to turn our expertise into products. And those could have been subsystems or modules or boxes that we sold to primes, but we wanted things to be tangible. So the kind of the phases we went through was first was just trying to turn our skill into products we could sell. And then, and that was the business model for 20 years. But then a a big part of what's catalyzed our growth for the last 10 years is we realized we were making these satellite ground systems, primarily ground being things that could go in aircraft or ships or, or ground, but they all used satellites in space for the, you know, the transmission. And what we realized was, wow, people weren't weren't making these satellites very well. There were business reasons and uh, other business model reasons where the owners of satellites either didn't understand how to to make really high bandwidth satellites or didn't want to. And so probably about 10 years ago, we really started focusing on services as the business model. So think of it as first we sold products that other people who delivered services or used satellite services would buy our technology. But we realized the much bigger landscape, bigger business was owning and operating satellites and making the best satellites. And then that would allow us to deliver the best services. And so then kind of our technology became a means to an end as opposed to the product end itself. And there were a lot of evolutionary steps along the way, but that I think that business model is what can carry us yeah, uh, you know, for for growth along the lines
0: of what we've had, even going forward. Really cool. And you were talking about venture capital and the fact that you guys raised the three hundred thousand from, I think, it was Southern California Ventures. Yes. So the um, how? I mean, we're talking about years ago. So how would you say that the venture capital space as a whole has, I would say, transitioned to where it is today? Oh boy. Well. So we've only been peripherally involved. And,
1: and one thing we realized pretty early on uh, was that we were really fortunate in working with Southern California Ventures because they were really honorable people. And uh, they let us grow the company in a way that was good for the company. It turned out, yes, it was, it was also really good for them. It was, it was like a hundred to one return for them when we went public in 96, but their fund had issues and they had to work, uh, they had to do some work with their limited partners in order to preserve our independence along the way. And we really, we really appreciated that. And they're, you know, they're, attitude was good. They let us grow in a way that was good for us. I'd and I'd say, you know, one of the things I, I think has seemed to have been, kind of think things go cyclically, but seems to have bounced back is I think there's a lot now there's a lot of uh basically uh, respect for entrepreneurs and, and the you know the drive that really strong entrepreneurs could have and how important they are to the success of the company, and I think they treated me and uh, you know our founding team well as entrepreneurs. I think there maybe were times in in between the you know the eighties, nineties, and today where it wasn't quite the same, where sort of the entity was maybe perceived as more independent from the entrepreneurs. But but I would say now, but if you look at big, you know the amount of money that goes into the biggest funds there's, you know, there's it's very difficult for them to deal with little startups like us. And, and now, you know, the kinds of money that we were raising, even if you were to escalate it for inflation, it's more in the realm of angel investors. It's really hard to find startup. I think from my perception of the venture industry, it's hard to find uh, venture capital investors who can really
0: take the time to invest in little companies that don't know what they're doing, you know, which is sort of us. <laughs> got it, got it. And and you were alluding to it. I mean, you guys did the the IPO, and and how much capital did you guys raise prior to going public? That was it. So we raised three hundred thousand, and we
1: probably sold another two or three. I can't remember another low few hundred thousands to employees in the 10 years so that was it was you know, we had a plan that the venture investors agreed to that we would issue some amount of stock only to new employees which we did and and they bought it along the way but i think our total in, you know capital raised was well under a million dollars well under a million dollars when we went public in 96
0: Got it. So then, that one hundred to one that you were alluding to makes uh, total sense. They probably invited you to dinner or to a drink. <laughs> I I imagine uh, it worked out well. I think they were. I think they were happy. Uh, and, and actually, they and,
1: and what, one of the things that is also amazing is that pretty much all the venture partners and even I think there are just limited partners held on to uh, you know Vysat stock. I think most many of them. Almost all of it from ninety six till now, and it's still been a really good investment'cause uh, you know we've grown pretty substantial. I think we're valued at twenty five ish million was our market cap when we went public, and today it's five ish yeah. you know, over five billion so it's been a good it's been a good
0: run for them since as well for sure, and you know for the listeners, you know if they want to take a look at this, they can see that when you guys IPO'd, that was around four. 4 dollars a share and now you are at about 90 dollars $90 a share which is uh, unbelievable what a, what a run so so i guess the um the you know you you were you had the opportunity to live the dot com boom and i guess the <laughs> dot com bust right yeah. so yes. so what what did you learn from from that you know kind of like environment and 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 i guess you know going through that uh, storm happening?
1: Yeah, so that was really interesting because in, in the run-up to the bus, so in the late 90s, th- you know, the Internet was becoming, you know, so late, mid to late 90s, Internet was becoming obviously more, way more important. And then there was this issue about, you know, what's, what is the transmission means going to be? And remember this in the late 90s, there was no cable modems even, right? There was hardly any DSL. So it was, there were enterprise networks, and it was very confusing about what, what was going to create value. Mobile was becoming a big thing, but there was really little in the way of mobile data. So we were, we were kind of watching this. We had gone public, and actually, I'd say the thing we learned, I think going public was really not you know it's just a means to an end it was a whole new learning experience for for me and the company about how to relate to investors and what did investors want and we could certainly see there was a lot of irrationality in that and we were trying to relate what people were investing in to what was going on but sat we could see i mean there was we could see satellites had a role in this and there were a bunch of satellite startups a lot of which were disasters but that was when there was iridium and global star were multi-billion dollar investments but so were things like was it global village and worldcom and enron there was all you know just there was this mass confusion tons of capital not very sophisticated investors and one of the things i'd say we learned well was to just not chase what was hot, and what the investment banks or the analysts were telling us. I mean, we the thing that was interesting about us was we had a growing and and good defense business. We saw applications to commercial, and we saw these synergies between them. But it, there was this whipsaw thing where people would say, "Oh, you know, in the '90s it was like get rid of your defense business, turn yourself into a pure commercial, you know, internet broadband business, and you'll be worth." Way more than you know, way way more than you are now, and we didn't do that because the we were you'd seen how we had grown basically from profits and cash flow. We said no, you know it's good to have those things, and we get R and D. And then the crash happened, and everybody said, "Dump all your broadband businesses, just stay with defense." And no, that wasn't a good idea either. So we really had to kind of navigate those things for ourselves. I would say. There were times when that made it harder in dealing with investors, but we also, the biggest, probably the single biggest thing in the boom was we were subcontracting, we were subcontracting to Boeing when they were going to do Connection by Boeing, which was the first in-flight uh, internet uh, a service, and we were working for a, a Lockheed and TRW startup that was going to do enterprise broadband by satellite. And we were working for a company called Wild Blue that was going to do consumer internet by satellite. And all three of those things in the fall of 2001 all, you know, ran into big problems either from nine 11 or the stock market meltdown or mergers. And we had, we had a really tough period there where, Uh, we had literally hundreds of millions of dollars of backlog of business go away almost overnight. That was, that that was, if you look at our stock history, there was a time in kind of early 2000s where our stock was back down to like $3 a share because of that. But uh, we navigated it. I mean, we, it was really stressful, but we navigated it. And I think that combination of defense and, and, Commercial and consumer is what sustained us all that
0: time. And I guess during those um, times, I'm sure it was incredibly stressful uh, for you, Mark. Uh-huh. So I guess how how do you typically like during these like super stressful situations, like when you're out of work, how do you re-energize to really get back and and, and tackle things? Well,
1: uh, <laughs> one thing. I try to keep an even keel. It's, you know, it's it's like we're never as smart as people think we are when things are going well, and we're never as dumb as people think we are when things don't look so good. You know, I, I try to you know make sure we you know be be rational about things, and and I felt like uh, we had, we still had a lot of potential. Uh, one of the things that I would say has been really helpful for me and and for the company as a whole is just going back to the way we started the company, which was really about building a company and a team more than trying to, let's say, you know, cash in on a product idea, it is that we have had a really close-knit team that's been together for a long time. And I think we all support each other well, and we have a lot of confidence in each other and I think that helped everybody at the toughest of times, which is sort of knowing the quality of the team. I, I think also, early on, I, I, I mentioned this thing about I, I think of engineering and business kind of like sports teams. I, I mean I, I, re- I really like playing team sports. I like basketball. And I think you develop this sense of camaraderie on a team that that it's really fun, it's it's enjoyable and it's powerful for the best teams. And I, I think that's kind of what we wanted to develop as a company. And I think the fact that we were more focused on the company's growth, as opposed to just cashing in on a particular product, really paid dividends in those tough times because it was, there was such a strong sense of teamwork among us. And, you know, I think in a really strong team, everybody has a role, you know, and I had my own role, but I've always seen, you know, my job is is just, you know, there are certain things I do, but I can count on other people to do their parts well, which they, they always did. And I think that, I don't know if it makes sense to you, but that combination and that teamwork and sense of 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 camaraderie, that that I think that was a big factor in helping the whole company pull through those tough times.
0: Got it. And you know, you were alluding to it that the co-founders are still around and you know, I think that the culture is everything, right? Uh-huh. So so I guess the um, you know, thirty-three years is is quite a bit of time and and we all know that entrepreneurship is not such thing as a, as a straight line. So I guess, absolutely <laughs> yes. not. So, so I guess, uh, Mark, I, I want to ask you here something. So what would you say that has been perhaps the biggest breakdown that has led to the biggest breakthrough, let's say, in the history of, of the business that really created like an unbelievable culture and environment?
1: Well, you know, I, think, I think cultures, well, one, I think they evolve. Uh, it's and and I think one of the things I learned, boy, once you get above a few hundred people, most of culture evolves indirectly. You know, certainly you know, the CEO and and the leaders through things like all hands or, or your actions can have an impact on culture. But especially for us, one of the things that that we ended up doing fairly early on was we, we decided that we would have multiple geographic locations so that we could be close to customers, and the other was so that we could recruit people who wanted to live in places like Boston or Washington. And especially when you have multi-site, which we, we've been for a very long period of time, you know, culture kind of evolves through these shared experiences and the things that people think are important. So I, I, I'm not, you know, I think we're really fortunate in the way the culture evolved, but a lot of it comes not just from the things we do, but the people that you hire, the reasons that they come to work, uh, you know, what are the things that they like, because those are the things that they will share and reinforce. And, you know, one of the things that's really interesting to me is when I go to our different locations, you can see the kind of the key leaders there will have they will they will maybe even focus on culture in an explicit way more than we did in the home office here in San Diego because they they want the new hires who weren't exposed to you know me and the rest of the company to understand what our values were and it was really interesting seeing how they wrote those down and captured them and explained them. And I think the thing that really was, was amazing to me was seeing how, how, how they had written down stuff that we just sort of did by instinct, but they'd captured it really well. And that's when I knew that we, you know, that we really had a a culture that, uh, well, one people really appreciate and still, they still do. I think if, if you talk to people that work here, even new hires, there's 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 some really unique things about the company, which I think go to trust for employees. That that that, that you know we expect them to 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 perform well. We've I, I've really not been big on things like organization charts because when we were small, I think one of our strengths were that people would do whatever was needed at the time. They didn't think of themselves as having specific positions. So, you know, like Mark, Mark Miller, the co-founder is fabulous on, you know, communication systems theory. He would buy parts, he would solder on benches, he would pack stuff up to ship. I mean, Steve Hart would do the, any, what, anything that we needed. That was what the whole team did. And I think that cultural thing is something that you want to preserve. And so I think we had all these people that, really wanted to preserve that and i think that's what
0: happened i don't know (laughs) yeah i i i completely get that because ultimately culture is all about the founders perhaps and then it's something that that people get just influenced by and it just takes a life of its own within the within the corporation so so i can i can absolutely get that and and one thing here is say when you are let's say uh, growing the business 2x or 3x you know a year I think that as a leader yourself, you also need to scale. So, so, Mark, in your case, I mean, you grew this from nothing, right, to, to where it is today. How many employees do you have today? Uh, about, I think around
1: 5,500 or so. I mean, that's uh,
0: quite a fair <laughs> amount of employees. So I, guess, I guess how were you able, because I, I've seen as well that when you're experiencing that tremendous amount of growth, you also need to, to grow yourself as a human being, as a leader. <laughs> so, so, so how was that process for you?
1: Uh, it's, it's an ongoing process still. I, you know, I, I, I just feel like, uh, you know, well, there's this whole notion of lifelong learning. I think that I always, and then you combine that with the fact that our business keeps evolving, you know, and we keep changing what our business is. So the way I think of it is I'm perpetually unqualified for my job because even if I figured out the things that got us to where we are, those aren't the things that are going to get us uh, to where we want to be. And so I spend a ton of time reading and just trying to, to learn. I mean, it's, there's this saying I heard once it says it takes a wise man to learn from his failures or his experience, but it takes an exceptional one to learn from the experiences of others. And that's what I've, you know, that's what I've always tried to do is just, just read and, you know, listen to podcasts like yours and try to figure out, you know, what are the things that people go through, and what should we be looking for, and what are the traps? so I guess a lot of it's just sort of fear that I'm not going to be able to to keep up, and I think that drives me to to do. And I think the, the other thing though that's really important, I think in being a successful CEO and scaling this way, is to have a really strong team of executives, and you know to always be looking for people who are better than me and all the disciplines that we need. And to give them credit and, you know, to, I mean, to give them, you know, a lot of latitude, you know, just be sure that our objectives are the same and that we trust each other, but but not micromanage or second guess. Let let the people know what they're doing, you know, do what they do. Uh, so I think it, it's... You know, I think, yes, there's a lot that CEOs need to learn, but a lot of it is to just make sure you don't get in the way. That, that was one of the things early on I felt like was a, sort of the best executives and leaders don't interfere with the skills and talents of the people that work for them. That they let them be successful, that they're not, you know, making them be successful. Or d- commanding them or controlling them to be successful. They let them be successful. So
0: some of that is actually doing less, right? Not more. Yeah. And I keep hearing, you know, from from all the folks that I hear is that it's all about who you are surrounding yourself uh, with, you know, in terms of colleagues and and senior executives and and so forth. So I guess in, in in your case, Mark, is there one specific trait that? you look for when you're, you know, getting someone on board in your team?
1: Yeah, I, yeah, I think I'm going to go back to this uh, teamwork, you know, the sense of teamwork that, you know, I think that I'm not the only one that feels that way here, that I think when we recruit senior people or new people, you know, what you really want them to to do is to look around and go, wow, I, that's a team I'd like to be part of. And and to think of it just in that way, that they appreciate the skills and the talents and the competence uh, and the motivations of the people that are here, that they look at the things we're trying to achieve and that they feel like, hey, I, I want to be part of that team. And there's a lot that goes into that attitude, right? It's respect for what we Have already it's uh, sort of excitement around the potential and it's sort of appreciation of what the role that new individuals can bring to that, whether they're new hires or really senior people. I think that's the thing that we're really looking for is people who want to be part of a winning team and realize that it takes a team to win. Uh, I think that's that's. I think if you have that attitude over a long period of time
0: and it's and it's real. Uh, that's really powerful. And one question that, that I always ask the guests that we have on the show is, you know, let's say I mean thirty-three years, Mark, you know, <laughs> it has been a ride, right? It <laughs> yeah. has been all right. Yeah. So so I guess I guess looking back, if if you had the opportunity to talk with your younger self, with that young Mark that is giving the resignation to link a bit, uh, if you had that opportunity to have that conversation, what would you tell yourself? What would be that one piece of business advice that you would give to your younger self and why? Well,
1: I don't know. There are a couple of things. One thing that I'm amazed at now, because now that we're as big as we are, I'll see, uh, I'll see little companies, you know, who who have great ambitions and maybe re- great talent, but will, you know, want to do ambitious things. i go, wow, that's hard. You know, how are they? How are they ever going to do that? And I think one of the things that helped us when we were small was sort of being blissfully ignorant of of how hard it would be, you know, of what of you know, just all the things we had to go through. And uh, I remember people telling us, uh, just being amazed, "Oh, hey, you started this company! Isn't that incredibly risky?" And I just didn't see it that way. And I would say that part's really good, and in some sense, you know, having too much understanding of what you're getting into might be hard. So, so that part, I, I would say I wouldn't, I wouldn't change. The one, there's one skill that I think we've never really, I've never really developed, which I marvel at now. Which is, uh, if you look at our whole histories, investors have always kind of valued us based on what we've done. And uh, one of the things that's so striking today is uh, how many companies have astronomical valuations, not based on what they've accomplished or already, but just because of the size of the marketer that they've been able to convince people that they're going to be successful, that it's all about, you know uh, uh, so some of our investors used to talk about you know the sizzle versus the steak and we've always been really focused on the steak part right is how are we going to how are we going to perform this year how are we going to balance investments and profits and you know, i think in in many ways that's been good for us i'm a, i'm a little bit ambivalent because you see some of these companies some of whom are in the space uh domain like us and have astronomical valuations. Some of them have valuations much higher than us, even though they've done not, you know, very little in the domains that we have and understanding, you know, when we started, we were a very capital light company, but right now we have billions of dollars of assets. We need to invest in more assets that the you know things in space are, they're really expensive. And so, You know, paying some more attention to how you convince investors of the potential, as opposed to showing them what we've done. I've still got to figure that part out. And if I would, I think maybe if I were to go back thirty something years, uh, I think I think there's some some balance required between the skills that we've had that have worked for us well, and the skill of spinning the vision to investors, actually, uh, it'd be interesting to see what you think, but I think a lot of the, of the entrepreneurs who have been around for a long time running companies really were maybe more focused on this execution, you know, how do we perform and how do we evolve as opposed to how do we
0: spin? Yeah, uh, I don't know. I, mean, I, I don't know
1: that's... the answer to that, but there's a balance in there,
0: for sure. And I think that that's a very interesting uh, point that you're touching on here, Mark. Because I find that the hype, you know, at the end of the day, you know, it can you can sell that for so long. I yeah. mean, eventually, you need to deliver. And I find that perhaps the conservative approach that that you have, you know, and and the lenses from which you're looking at things, probably you're not going to have that. Extra zero on the right—that is going to get people excited. But ultimately, you're going to be able to always over-deliver uh, on on whatever you're promising, because that's what integrity creates: is being able to deliver on your word. And I rather, if if I was to look at things, I rather deliver than you know create hype and eventually you know everything comes crashing.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. But I think there's, you know, I always think of these skills, and so that's the skill I think if you can find people who can really deliver but can help spin that vision uh you know having a high you know having a high capitalization is a it's it's a tool right it, that's that's good for the company
0: and the team and so that's the that's the one i'm still working on uh, yeah well perhaps it's storytelling yeah. right so uh, yeah. maybe you know uh, you can make some friends in hollywood and <laughs> they, can, they can they can give you one or two tips but but anyhow so mark what is the um for the folks that are listening what is the best way for them to reach out and and say hi
1: oh uh email works the best for me so just
0: uh, com. that's that's the best way to get a hold, a hold of me Amazing! And do you use any type of social media, like LinkedIn or Twitter or anything like that? I'm more of
1: a lurker. <laughs> and,
0: <Okay>. uh, yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was, You know, I, I haven't.
1: I think that's part of the spinning and storytelling. I, I, I'm still not sure everybody really wants to know what I think about everything, so I don't. Okay. Got
0: it. <laughs> All righty. Well, Mark, thank you so so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today.
1: Well, thank you for having me, Alejandro. I, was, I really enjoyed it.